0: This evening we have, of course, as you're well aware, a congregational meeting, but as it is always fitting to gather and to hear from the Lord, so we give attention to the preaching of His Word now in Romans 8 and verse 32. As we do, we're mindful that there are many things that uh, would war against us and the cause for encouragement and comfort as we follow Christ. And Paul is not sparing in those circumstances. But notice the verse itself, verse 32. He that spared not his own Son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? The Christian considers well all that stands opposed to him. It is understandable why there's the temptation To become anxious and filled with worry. It's not excusable, of course, but it's at least understandable why it is that anxiety is a temptation. Of course, there's Satan who is going about seeking to devour uh, those who are unwatchful. There is the great uh, distress of soul that comes from the increase of sin. There is the worrisome trend of those who apostatize from the faith and turn away from the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's the world and its relentless assault against our own souls in various ways, many of which we're not even aware, and yet we realize and feel the sting of their attacks. There is, of course, the outward afflictions, many of which come to us as we stand for Christ, we speak for Christ, and we encounter The ridicule, the laughter, and the pressure, if not the persecuting influence of an unbelieving and a God-despising world. And then there is, of course, remaining sin. And it's hard to think of something that more troubles the Christian than his own remaining sin. All of these might gather around us and say, you don't have much cause to have confidence that God will continue His work. In fact, if you look around, uh, so the argument might go, there's much more cause to think that God will give up. But Paul is setting before us a great encouragement. You'll notice the text uh, presents this statement of God's gift. and so in verse 32, he testifies quite simply, "He that's speaking of God that spared not his own son, but delivered him up. So he's pointing out something that's been done, which we'll consider more this evening. And then notice, it's to the end that we would better consider what should follow in our understanding. This rhetorical question, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? So this delivering of his own Son for our sins, in our place, to bear our guilt and the just judgment of, is this so glorious display of God's great love and commitment to His people that it is then to be the firm persuasion, confidence, and assurance that God will withhold no good thing that He has promised from His own. Thus, Paul's statement, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? Now, the all things, of course, could be exaggerated to mean well, he's going to give us riches and wealth in this present life. That's not the context. You'll notice the context is regarding those things regarding all aspects of salvation. And so he goes back if we look back rather to verse 29 after he speaks of those that love God. He says in verse 29 for whom he did foreknow he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. Think of that in and of itself. There is this great privilege of knowing that though the work is not complete yet, that everyone in Christ will be conformed to bear the image of Christ. You can start to see why our remaining sin can cause, if not so explicitly in our mind and openly in our mind, yet a stumbling point, a drag, as it were, on our souls that is almost imperceptible in some ways. When we see our own sins, there can be this sense of Hopelessness, when, how, can it ever be that I should grow unto the likeness of Christ? Notice moreover in verse 29, it speaks that he, Christ, might be the firstborn among many brethren. Many brethren, not few, but many. We look at the church, not just our own congregation, but the church as we did a few weeks ago on our day of humiliation. We think for a moment, when we actually look at any kind of statistic that would in any degree accurately reflect numbers of Christians in this world, it is small compared to the great majority of those in our own nation, particularly how much more in nations that are largely uninfluenced by the Gospel. It seems that there are but few. And yet here we have this testimony that many and the Scriptures are full of this promise You see in verse 30, whom he did predestinate them, he also called. Whom he called, them he also justified. Whom he justified, them he also glorified. And so, these all things, is referring to these all things of uh, the Lord's promises to us regarding salvation and the coming of his kingdom. Now, this is large. This is Uh, nearly all-encompassing, and surely it does include temporal provision for what is needed. So we're taught to pray, give us this day our daily bread. And the Lord promises that if we seek first His kingdom and righteousness, all things shall be added unto us. All these things. Food, drink, raiment. But you'll notice that the foundation is not on God's bare promise, which is sufficient. If all we had was God's promise, we would have sufficient and firm foundation for our hope. Notice what Paul points out. This God, who's promised to give us these things, is that God who spared not His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all. What's the point? It's this. That in God giving a Son for our sins, He has provided a guarantee for the enjoyment of, of all of the promises regarding our salvation and the coming of His kingdom as well. And so, when we face discouragement, in some sense, Paul's saying it's not the only thing we need to do, but one thing we need to do is reflect upon the historical fact that God did not spare His own Son but delivered Him over to bear our sins, which is the display of love. And is it not the case Dear ones, that there is often the temptation in our minds to think, does God care? Does God love? Well, maybe we wouldn't say, does God love? But as a believer even, we might say, does God care for me? Does God love me? Is He going to meet my needs? And here we have a great cause of hope. Again, our time is limited, so notice just a couple of things that might By the Lord's blessing, give us encouragement as we face the year ahead, as the Lord gives us life, to face it with confidence that all of the promises of God are in Christ. Yea, and Amen, by Him. Firstly, notice the greatness of God's love for His Son. If we're going to understand the great hope that we have, we have to understand this background. God has an immeasurable love for his son. So and then secondly we'll consider briefly the greatness of his son's suffering but firstly the greatness of his love for his son. He that spared not his son but notice it doesn't say that. It says he that spared not his own son. This is an expression of essential unity. It's His own Son, not His adopted son, not His adopted children, as loved as they are, Christians, right? But this is His eternal Son. This is the Son of the Father, eternally begotten before all ages, before all worlds. This is not that Arian heresy that says, well, He's the greatest of creatures, and He then becomes the agent of all other creation. No. The Son is that eternal Son, one with the Father and the Spirit, one person of the blessed Godhead, His own Son. And though there's much in these thoughts that transcend our own ability to understand, notice in John 17 that this love that the Father has for His Son is an eternal love. So Jesus is praying, of course, as we're familiar with, Notice in verse 5, he says, and now, this is John 17, verse 5, O Father, glorify Thou me with Thine own self, with the glory which I had with Thee before the world was. Now consider this for a moment. Even in human, mere human relationships, we understand that the more one walks in love with another in this life, the deeper that love and unity becomes. Now, there's no such development among the persons of the Godhead because they have all things infinitely. The Godhead is indeed infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. But there's a whisper of something in our relationships. So when a couple gets married, there's love, sincere, doubtlessly, and yet it's immature. And if they have the privilege of living together through trials and hardships and decades pass... That love ripens and strengthens. It's like a vine, you can think of it, which is tender at first, and yet as it wraps around and it becomes older and mature and well-nourished, it becomes hard and firm, and you cannot separate two things that have twisted up one with the other. Whereas when you see, for instance, in the springtime, the little shoots of new vines growing up, it's easy to move them along. But when two have lived together for decades in loving service to one another and wrapped themselves, as it were, around one another and have been strengthened and matured for these years, that is something that is now inseparable. Well, what of God's eternal love? The Father loving the Son before the world was. His enjoyment of this uh, blessed and mysterious relationship within uh, the one Godhead, of course, is transcending our minds. But notice that this is exactly something that Christ is expressing in this chapter when he says, for instance, in verse 21, that they all may be one as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee. Notice that's the foundation of the unity of the church. The unity of the church is consequential to the decree of God. But the unity of this uh, this unity between the Father and the Son is an essential unity that's been enjoyed forever. And notice as well in verse 23 as he prays that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Now, it's true, of course, even God's love toward His people is eternal. But His love toward His people is by an act of His will. It is something that He sovereignly chose. Whereas the love between Father, Son, and Spirit is a love that is ever and ever shall exist based on the nature of the persons. That there is such a fellowship of glorious wonder in this. That is beyond, of course, our ability fully to recognize. But you can get close, or at least you can get a sense of what this is. When a mother, for instance, gives birth to a child, there is all of the pain that goes on in the labor, but so soon as the child's delivered, there's such a flood of delight to see and to hold her own child. And so it is within family reunions. We come together with family, and there are Brothers and sisters and cousins and aunts and uncles. It's not the world, however dear the world and friends may be, yet these are our family, our own flesh and blood as it were. There's a delight in that. Well, so it is in some little whisper that this, the Father looks upon His Son throughout all all eternity and says, This is My Son, an eternal love, brethren, this love is as well a delightful love. We know what it is, for instance, to have love toward spouses, siblings, children, parents, and to bear with their faults. In fact, this is a mark of grace as we do so. But realize this. Though our love toward one another will have its grief because of sins, our own sins and the sins of others, never, Has the fellowship of love between Father, Son, and Spirit been marred with such things? Of course, you have a little sense of this in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 17 when Christ is baptized and we hear a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And this is representative of of the totality of His love. His Son is ever a beloved Son. His Son is ever one in whom He is well pleased. Never once did the Son think, feel, do, or say something that was in the least degree contrary to His Father's will. But everything ever done was done to the glory of His Father. Indeed, there is a delight in the love of the Father to the Son, by the way which transcends the highest degree of your love to anyone. Though it is true that toward your spouse, perhaps toward your children or nieces, nephews and others, there's a sincerity of love and doubtlessly we know something of what there is to be said about strong love toward one. Versus weak love toward one. Well, there's no such degrees of love between Father, Son, and Spirit, the Father has an infinite delight in the person of His Son and never has had that. Never once was that withheld. The greatness of God's love for His Son is indeed higher than we can fully conceive. And so when we see that in Romans 8, verse 28, that Paul says, that He did not spare His own Son. We have to see that with this as the background. He did not spare His only begotten Son whom He loves and who, with whom He is well pleased. He that spared not His own Son. Who is that? That's Jesus Christ. This is my Beloved Son, He that spared not His own beloved Son. Who is that? It's Jesus Christ. He that spared not His own beloved Son in whom He is well pleased. We can measure the measure of a gift not perhaps by the size or in our world even the amount of money, but rather we can measure it by how much that gift means to the one giving it. And so if something is very special to one, it is then very special to receive it from that one. And so we hear stories, of course, of people who um, received an heirloom and it was a special gift, a ring perhaps, and this has been highly prized by them. And then they give it to a daughter or granddaughter for their wedding. And it's a special thing. Now, the ring itself may be, relatively speaking, not that expensive. But it means something significant to the one giving it. And so it, of course, is a significant gift. Well, here, his own son, of course, is not only significant to the Father, but he is significant in himself. This is the object of worship and adoration by the angels. This is the eternal Son of God who is infinite Himself as the Son of God, as a member, a person of the Godhead. And so not only is the measure of His love clear in that the Father loves the Son infinitely and is infinitely delighted in Him, but the Son Himself is indeed God. And so we begin to get a sense of the greatness of this gift by understanding both the greatness of God's love for His Son and the greatness of the Son Himself, but we must press on. So secondly, consider the greatness of His Son's suffering if we are to understand then the greatness of this gift. Because it says here that He delivered Him up for us all. Of course, Paul has labored in various places in this epistle to show that it's Jesus Christ who was appointed to suffer on the cross. But why? It wasn't just that He was suffering in order to display something of an example, but rather, as is noted, He was not spared, but He delivered Him up. He handed Him over. And the notion here is one of give, being commissioned and handed over and appointed unto judgment. This is, of course, something that Paul has indicated. If you turn back to Romans chapter 3, you'll notice how this is mentioned there in Romans chapter 3. And notice, for instance, at verse 20, when Paul says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, There shall no flesh be justified in His sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. And then notice, how is this then dealt with? Well, it's dealt by what the law and the prophets testify to. Verse 22, "...the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption." that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood. We have to pause and stop there. Here's the point that Paul's making. The One who was sent and delivered to make this atoning sacrifice is His beloved and eternally loved Son. He gives His Son over Who among us could consider doing such a thing? Because for whom is He given over? But for those who were guilty before God as transgressors, those who were careless before God in their wickedness, those who have done all manner even of unspeakable things that Paul has indicated, the wickedness, the vile speech and actions, desires, lusts, thoughts, and other such things, all of this sin, and yet the Father settles upon the giving of His Son for what purpose? Well, first notice that His Son is thus brought low because it speaks of the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, propitiation through faith in His blood. But God has no blood. God has a Spirit. And so it's already stating just in this passage the wonder of Christ being brought low and in His incarnation. And so the Father is committing His Son into a state of humiliation for a season. But in that state of humiliation, to bear the judgment and curse that is due against transgressors. Now think of that for a moment. The greatness of His Son's suffering is seen in this. He, as God, has an infinite, detesting of the slightest of sin. He's not like you and I, which can tolerate sin at the least. Nor is He like you or I, who find some pleasure in sin, though perhaps not the most egregious sort. He is infinitely and ever detesting sin. And yet, he's delivered over but he's not just delivered over as it were for some punishment but he's made the sin bearer notice how paul speaks of this in another portion second corinthians in chapter 5 such was the intimacy of christ's association with our sin that paul's able to say in verse 21 he god the father hath made him god the son to be sin for us who knew no sin He takes the sin, as it were, and he embraces it, not with any delight, of course, in it, but rather out of love to his people and honor to his father. He says, I'll take it and bear it on me. That which I despise, that which I hate, heap upon me and reckon me guilty for their sins, though I've never done a sin. This points out his substitution that he becomes the sin bearer. He's treated as if he, though he hadn't, he's treated as if he was guilty of the sins of his people. There are a few things that can more make you loathe your own sin than to remember this. Every time you confess your sins as a believer, and every time you mutter the words, please forgive me, remember this and drive it deep within your soul, the only way that that's possible is yes, by God's grace, but by God's grace that treated His Son in the way that you deserve to be treated. Your sins are only forgiven because Christ was pierced through for them. He stood as the substitute, and in doing so, He endured the shame of sin openly, numbered with the transgressors, and indeed pierced through satisfying the just wrath of God. Let's be sure to realize that when Paul says that He delivered Him over for us all and has testified indeed that He has made propitiation ever to hear the words echoing in our minds that Christ cried out at the end, it is finished. Because He did satisfy. He made payment, full payment, as the one who suffered to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God. Now, why is that? Why did He do this? He did this out of love. The Father, out of love to us, sent His eternal Son incarnate to bear our sins. Our Father in heaven, out of love to us in mercy, appointed not the best angel, not the best mere man, but His eternal Son to be incarnate and bear our wrath. And His suffering, the Son's suffering was such that He was compelled to cry out, My God, My God, why hast Thou forsaken Me? The wrath of God, as it were, licking up all of His life with no comfort, no ease, no relief to His outward or inward suffering. Such suffering that we cannot fully understand. And why all of this? But Because the Father is faithful when He says that He loves His people and will indeed see them saved. Well, we must hasten to a close. And as we do, here is something for you and I to meditate upon. Where else has such a display of love, mercy, and grace been found? The answer is there isn't. Now, there are moving spectacles of love. We hear stories of soldiers who, with no concern for themselves, leap upon a grenade for the protection of their fellow soldiers. There are stories of mothers who thrust themselves into danger for their children. Stories of husbands who do the same for their wives. There are all sorts of stories, but none of them can come close to what God has done for us freely and graciously. Why has He done that? Because He truly loves His people. Now, why should we meditate on this? Well, in and of itself, it's worthy of meditation. But it's also worthy and helpful for our own souls when we face trials and our mind starts to wander and then starts to begin thinking, does God care for me? If God cared for me. You see, as soon as that happens in our mind, and as soon as it leaps from our tongues, what's happening is we're neglecting all of this truth. If God cared for me, well, why is He doing this and that and the other thing? Does God love me because if He loved me, why would this happen or that happen or the other thing? And though the world is left in darkness without any foundation of comfort, The believer who has trusted in Christ has this sure ground of hope. Not if, but rather we must say, because God has loved me, He sent His Son. How can we measure His love for us when the measure of His love for us was the gift of His eternal Son? How can we begin to totally balance out and weigh well His love when His love is shown by the not withholding of His own Son, but delivering Him over for us all, and that to pay for our sins and bear such wrath. You see, this is a key cause of assurance when we consider what Christ has done for us. We don't have time to go into it, but you can look at what Paul's getting at when he says, you know, look at all the things that we face. Tribulation, distress, etc. But then he says, listen. There is nothing that shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. Nothing the world can do. Nothing Satan can do. Nothing that can become of us. Why? Because that love that He set upon us is so certain in that He gave His Son for us. Well, brethren, we close with one final word and that's here is a cause of thanksgiving of all of the gifts that the world covets and desires, we laugh at them because not one of them can ever measure up to what God has given us. What the world desires and celebrates and commercials sort of cultivate and the world parades before us and walks around with their chests puffed up and so on, we look at that and say, are you kidding me? That's what excites you. That's what makes you happy. That's what makes you have satisfaction. Something that in the end will perish. God has given to me His only begotten Son. And by His Son, He's given to me such salvation as shall never end. Brethren, There are real obstacles. There are real setbacks, trials, and seasons of weeping. There are times of mourning for the Christian in this present world, doubtlessly. But there is nothing in any of those things that can even put the smallest dent in the certain display of God's love for us. His love for us is in the clearest testimony, not just of His promise, but of His gift of His Son to us. And if we would meditate upon Him, we would both find our confidence and assurance grow, but as well our thanksgiving to Him now and always. Would you stand with me for prayer?